Welcome, welcome. Um, hey, I think summer's almost officially over, right? I mean, the weather probably doesn't tell us that, but school starting tells us that. And so I just wanted to welcome anybody who's been traveling over the summer. Maybe this is your first time here or maybe first time back in a couple weeks. And I just wanted to, t- to introduce myself to you. My name's Nathan. I'm the lead pastor here, which is an incredible honor. Um, yeah, it's been an amazing time here, and I feel so blessed to be here. This church is really special. Vertical's a really special place. Um, I tell everyone, and it, no offense to other churches, but I, I tell everyone there's not a church in Mississippi that I would have moved to Mississippi for besides Vertical, and that's large in part because of who you are. So I'm honored to be here, um, truly, and um, we are getting ready to start a new series as we're transitioning into the fall, and we're going to be going through the Gospel of Mark together. And even before I get there, how many people were here last Sunday, right? A lot of you? Yeah? I don't want to underestimate or overlook the fact that we celebrated eight baptisms last Sunday as well. Yeah. That is something that um, we don't take lightly. Uh, that is such a beautiful decision t- that we make that really shows kind of our faith. It's, it's People say it's making our faith, kind of going public with our faith, letting the world know that we follow Jesus. But for some people, it's people who've been following Jesus for a long time and you just haven't been baptized. And you're like, all right, it's time. And so for those eight people that made that decision last Sunday, I just wanna commend your courage and commend your faith. Thank you for that. And we're gonna continue to celebrate that together as a church family. And we're gonna continue to do baptisms at least once a quarter here. So if you were thinking about getting baptized or you haven't, there's gonna be an opportunity in November for you to sign up for that. So I just didn't wanted to make sure that we celebrated that together. And just to let you know that we're transitioning into a new series. We're gonna be in the Gospel of Mark together as a church family. And if you have your Bibles, if you've got your Bible app, you can just go and bookmark Mark chapter one. We're gonna be there. And before we get there, I just wanna do a little bit of setting up of um, our time together and just give us some context. And the first thing that I was thinking of as we approached the Gospels, I was processing this. Have you ever had something happen and it was your job to figure out all the facts and the details of the situation? Have you ever had anything like that happen? And the most shallow example that I have is when your kids get into an altercation, right? Especially with one another. Whose fault was it? His fault, her fault. They hit me first, wasn't my fault. And then as a parent, you just, you don't even care whose fault it was. What do you wanna know? The facts. Just tell me what happened. And then after they tell you what happened, from two kids, you get three different stories. Are you surprised? No, you're not. And most of us, we know that the first step in any investigation, especially criminal, right, let's take it a step deeper, more serious, is you gather evidence. You gather evidence. The first step in any investigation is you gather as much evidence as you possibly can. And this evidence can come in the forms of many different means. It can be uh, the best is an eyewitness testimony. Uh, it can be through a series of interviews. It could be through secondhand uh, testimony. It can be through uh, many different things, gathering evidence to build a story or a case. And typically what we do is we're either trying to defend something or someone or we're trying to prosecute someone or something or someone. And when we gather all the evidence, I want you to imagine this situation. 
imagine you're in charge of this investigation and it was a criminal offense and there was four suspects. Put yourself in this situation, all right? And now your job is to interview all four of these suspects. And every single story that each of these suspects gives you, it lines up perfectly down to the very last detail as one another. So you have four stories that are, I'm not, I'm not joking, they're exactly the same. Are you going to believe them? Some of you are like, yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me. Think about it. Just think about it for a second. If every single detail of those, of those four suspects' story lines up, do you think that they're telling the truth? A lot of us are like, yeah, I do. But I'm, I'm saying there's no difference at all. It's a little fishy, isn't it? Something's a little off. Now, think about it for a second. That, to me, smells like collusion. I was trying to think of what that word was, and our team was like, oh, that's collusion. That's like when you get with your siblings, you're like, hey, we all got to have the same story, otherwise you're going to get found out. And mom's like, hey, 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 come on now. I know better. If there is no difference in these stories, then you know that someone's not telling the truth. In any situation, if there's some details left out, if there's small differences in perspectives, if there's even a difference in interpretation, that makes for a more believable defense. Why? Because we're human beings. You have a different perspective than me. You experience things differently than me. You have a different memory than I do. Especially, have you noticed when you're in a heightened situation? Have you ever been in a heightened altercation? You saw something happen, something go down. Maybe you were involved in this situation yourself. And then your adrenaline is rushing, and now it's hours later, and you try to recall the facts of that situation. Can you do a very good job of it? No. It's like your mind forgets some of the details. And some stuff you remember more so than someone else who was there and experienced the same thing. Does that make sense? That's why when there's a difference in perspective and a difference in story, even about the same event, it's actually more believable and it's actually true. That's exactly what's going on with the four Gospels. I've heard people tell me, even as I studied them, well, how can you get four completely different stories and testimonies and there's different events that happen in one person's eyes and different events that happen in another's. And I'm like, yeah, it's because it actually happened, because it's true. If Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John had the same exact story, it would have been collusion. They would have been working together to try to trick the world. But they didn't do that. The four gospels are accounts, written accounts of eyewitness testimony brought together to give us an even fuller picture of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Each gospel account is like a portrait, and they give us a different perspective of who Jesus is. And they all write from their bias, from their bend, from their lens in which they see. And it, to take it a step further, let's look at it just briefly, broad overview, 30,000 foot. Matthew, the tax collector, did you know that he wrote the most structured account in his gospel? Well, doesn't it make sense that the person who's been handling money for his entire life lays out the most structured account of who Jesus is? Luke, the physician, 
who tradition tells us was discipled by the Apostle Paul, wrote one of the most intellectual accounts in Luke and in Acts. Doesn't it make sense that a physician would write one of the most intellectual accounts? And then John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, he wrote one of the most spiritually deep accounts of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And then we have the Gospel of Mark, where we're going to be together. And together we're going to be going through the Gospel of Mark and we're going to examine specific passages, events, sayings, teachings, and I think most importantly, the actions of Jesus. And we're going to be building a case. And what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to see that the Gospel of Mark is really answering two questions all throughout. Who is this person Jesus that's question number one. And what did he come to do? And it's important for us to have some context here before we jump into the Gospel of Mark, just because I find this to be so fascinating. I, ever since I got into seminary, I didn't know that, I didn't know in order to be a pastor, you had to be good at history, philosophy, theology, psychology. It's crazy. It's wild. But I love history. And so I want to take us back to this culture and this time period, and I want to just bring about how they shared stories. In the first century, there were no written accounts of the life of Jesus. None. Why is that? Because they lived in what is called an oral tradition. So we pick up a book and we read it. They would speak their stories and their history, and they would do it so often that it was literally just like reading a book. It would be like just us picking up a book and reading it today. That's how they learned. It was an oral tradition. And if you had a scroll, which was usually written on papyrus, it was for the elite in society. And so even in the synagogue, there would be the Torah, which would be recorded on a scroll. And typically there would only be one of them in a synagogue in a large town. And so even, even neighboring towns, if they were a smaller town, they would come to the larger town to read from the Torah, which was God's word, the first five books of the Bible, the law, God's instruction. And they would come to the synagogue multiple times a week in order to hear God's word, in order to study God's word, in order to pray together. Because of the oral tradition, it was difficult for any distorted accounts of who Jesus was to be circulated throughout society among people because there were so many actual eyewitnesses of Jesus. I think we forget that. I think a lot of us think our faith is just blind faith. It's not. It's really not. When you look back at the history, it is evident that there was not even hundreds, thousands of people that actually witnessed Jesus. And it's important to know that because of this, there was no false accounts that were able to be spread of who Jesus was. It'd be like someone saying, hey, I remember seeing Jesus, and he would literally fly from one town to the other in order to go do his ministry. And there'd be people who go, no, he wouldn't. He would walk. How do you know that? Because I saw him. Or did you see Jesus? Did you see the way that he treated tax collectors and sinners? Yeah, he was a part of stoning them. No, he didn't. How do you know that? Because I saw the way that he did life with tax collectors and sinners. 
it was really hard. But then what happened about one generation as we're getting to the end of the lives of these gospel writers, false information started to be circulated about who Jesus was and the things that he did. And so what the gospel writers did, they said it's important now for us to give a written account of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And this was to prevent anyone from creating a Jesus based off of their own opinion. Isn't it funny? I feel like that's what a lot of people in culture do today. We create Jesus in our own image. We create God based off of our own opinion. And a Jesus that we create in our own opinion doesn't have the power to save us. Why? Because we created him. A Jesus you create in your own image doesn't have the power to transform your life. Why? Because for a lot of us, we're trying to stay stuck in our comfort. That's why we created Jesus in our own image. God is not subject to our opinions. He's not. He wouldn't be God if that were so. If Jesus was real and he is who he said he was, then that Jesus has the power to save me. And I can't help but be changed by the life, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of that Jesus. And so what we're going to do as a church, and I'm spending some time setting this series up. I'm clearing the way, right? And as we make way for the person of Jesus and behold his life and his ministry, it's inevitable that our reality will begin to change. And so now what I want to do is I want to jump into the Gospel of Mark. And even just to give us a little bit more context, the writer, the author of the Gospel of Mark, his name is John Mark. And he was the youngest of the Gospel writers. And tradition and history tells us that John Mark was a co-worker with the Apostle Paul and that he was a close friend of Peter. And there was an early church historian by the name of Papias who lived in 80 AD, just 50 years after the death of Jesus. And Papias said that the gospel of Mark was actually Peter's eyewitness account of the person and life of Jesus. If you're a note taker, I want to encourage you to take some notes this morning. Because there's a lot of heavy lifting that we're going to do together. There's maybe a little bit more dispensing of information this morning. But it's all just to set us up so that we could have a clear runway and we could have some smooth sailing for these weeks to come. And so when we read the Gospel of Mark, I want you to think about we're actually looking through the eyes and the lens of Peter. One of the closest companions and disciples of Jesus. That's pretty cool. And Mark answers two questions. It spends chapters one through eight answering the question. You'll hear it. You'll, you'll read it. You'll see it. Who is the person Jesus? There's even religious leaders who are, who are saying that question of like, who does this guy think that he is? And so the first half of the Gospel of Mark is answering that question. Who is Jesus? And then the second half, the final eight chapters of the Gospel of Mark, is answering the question, what did he come to do? What did he come to do? What was his purpose? Why did he do the things that, that he did in the way that he did them? So those two questions are going to be our filter over the next seven, eight weeks. Who is Jesus and what did he come to do? And now we're gonna pick up together God's word and we're gonna read in Mark chapter one. And I'm gonna read verses one through four 
together, 7 through 9 and 21 through 28. So if you just want to listen to God's word right now as I read it, that's great. If you want to follow along, I would suggest that to you. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 7. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time... Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Verse 21. They then went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus said, Be quiet. Come out of him. And the impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this a new teaching and with authority he even he even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him news about him spread quickly over the whole region of galilee mark is the most fast paced action packed gospel of all four and mark is not wasting any time so remember, our first question is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And this is what Mark does at the very beginning, Mark chapter 1, verse 1. What he's saying is, Jesus, this Jesus, is the real king that the world has been waiting for. And they just didn't know it yet. Mark chapter 1, verse 3, and this is why I'm saying, if you're taking notes, this is one of those, this is one of those days. Mark chapter 1, verse 3, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. That comes directly out of Isaiah chapter 40. And I would encourage you, please go read Isaiah chapter 40. When you read Isaiah chapter 40, trust me, take my word for it, Isaiah chapter 40 spends its entirety telling the nation of Israel that God is going to return. And when he comes, he's going to demonstrate his glory to his people. And Isaiah chapter 40 says, you will know that this is happening because my messenger will come before me, preparing my way. And so when we read this, this is what Mark is doing. He's recording history. This is a historical account. This is what actually happened. He's saying John the Baptist is the messenger. 
that has come to prepare the way for the Lord. And he's come to make straight paths for him. And if John the Baptist is the messenger, then Mark is revealing to us that Jesus Christ is the Lord, God himself, the king. In that word that we read, Messiah, in Mark chapter 1, the good news about Jesus the Messiah, that word Messiah means Christ. And so when we read Jesus Christ in some interpretations, in some, I'm drawing a blank on the word, what is it when there's different translations? Thank you, my goodness. There's too much information in my brain this morning. In some translations, it will say Jesus the Christ, Jesus Christ. And that word Christ, it comes from the word Messiah. And that word Messiah in the Greek, it means anointed one. And remember, the Bible was written in Hebrew and in Greek. And there's some Aramaic in there, right? In the Greek, that word Messiah means the anointed one. In the Hebrew, it means king. It means king. And so together, because a lot of words in Greek and Hebrew have a rich meaning. It's not like English. Together it means the anointed king, the Messiah. The one that the Jews had been waiting for their entire life who would come back and make everything right. And think about this for a second too. To honor a king in the ancient world, you traditionally would build a road for them. This is just common practice. If a king was going to travel anywhere, before they would go, there would be servants that went out and they would make uneven paths even. They would make high ground level. So they would actually go out and they would create a road where there was no road for the royalty that was getting ready to come into wherever place they were traveling. And so when John the Baptist or even Isaiah is saying prepare the way, make straight paths. In essence, what they're saying is make way, the king is coming. Make way, the king is coming. And with this king comes the inauguration of his kingdom. And with his kingdom comes a different kind of rule and a different kind of reign. Something that no one had seen before. Mark chapter 1, verse 21. It says, they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. Not just anybody goes into the synagogue and teaches, all right? We need to know that. And when he did that, the people were so amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching. A new teaching. And with it, authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. At the temple, the temple was the epicenter of worship. You had the priests and the Levites. 
they were in charge of everything that went down at the temple. Sacrifice, they were the mediator between you and God. You couldn't go directly into God's presence. And so what happened is you had religious leaders that wanted the Jewish people to be able to worship God outside of the temple. And so they created what is known as the synagogue. And then with the synagogue came Pharisees, came teachers of the law, came scribes, people that writ, wrote and record and copied translations of God's word. And so these teachers of the law, these Pharisees, they were also called rabbis. They were the ones that had authority in society. And so Jesus comes along and he enters in to their synagogue and they say something very peculiar about Jesus. It says that the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not like the teachers of the law. And this was different about Jesus and the way that he taught. You know, whenever you, like, we have some teachers in the room, right? If you're getting ready to go and teach anything, are you going to claim to be the ultimate source of authority on whatever subject you're teaching? Generally speaking, no, you're not. Generally speaking, you're not. Generally speaking, what are you going to do? You're going to point to other sources of authority that give you your authority to teach on that subject matter. Does that make sense? Right? So nobody in here who's teaching physics or anything science-related is going to claim to be ultimate authority. What are they going to do? They're going to point to someone like Einstein. And they're going to say, his theory of so-and-so is why we believe this. They're not the ultimate source of authority. He is. But when Jesus comes along, he teaches in such a way that he is the ultimate source of authority. And it shocks everyone. They're saying, hold up. This is unlike anything we've ever seen before. This is different than any Pharisee, than any religious leader, than any scribe. This is different. And it's not just different, it's new. It's new. Jesus was in essence saying, you have built your life around the authority found in the Torah. You have built your life around this word. And you're missing the fact that this word was actually pointing to me. I'm the ultimate source of authority. And so only Jesus can teach as the ultimate source of authority. And this word that we see, authority, it means power, it means rule, and it means dominion. The people were all amazed and they exclaimed, what is this? a new teaching, and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey him. And so Jesus was making some claims with the way that he taught. And to back those claims up, what does he do? He exercises his authority again over impure spirits. So to reinforce his authority that he taught with, he took it a step further and demonstrated his power to heal and to cast out demons. Even just after this, if you can continue reading the Gospel of Mark, when he goes to Capernaum, Peter's mom is sick with a fever and he takes her fever away. Again, demonstrating a, a different kind of authority. And it's not just different, it's new. This is a different kind of authority. No one really has seen authority quite like this before. 
And I wanted to ask you to think about this with me. Please, think about this. When you think about authority, what, what comes to mind for you? You don't have to call it out, but I want you to, to genuinely, genuinely think about this. When you think about authority, how does it make you feel? Just be real. Do words like freedom come about? No, right? When you think about authority, I mean, for me, safety. But for some people, it could be oppression. It could be held back. What do you think about when you think about authority? Limiting? Debilitating? What are some feelings that that word invokes inside you? Now I want you to think about this new authority that Jesus shows up with, this king shows up with. When we look at the authority that he has, what comes to mind? What comes to mind? Healing. Freedom. What comes to mind? Restoration. Worth, value, what comes to mind with this king? This authority lifts up. This authority brings life. This authority resurrects. This authority makes whole. Amen. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. The kingdom of God has come near, Mark says. Repent. You know what that word means? It means make way. The king is coming. The king is here. And once you behold this king and you're confronted with this power and this authority, it changes some things about you. It's almost as if we're forced to reorient our lives around this king. And think about it. We don't have a king, right? We don't live in a, is it called a monarch? But what would happen if royalty stepped on this stage right now? I mean, th please, humor me. What if royalty stepped on this stage and there was someone that you've looked up to for many years, right? What if Taylor Swift stepped on this stage right now? <laughs> Some of you would start convulsing, you Swifties, crying, for real. That just goes to show where we're at as a culture. Gosh, <laughs> we have some Swifties on our staff. In all seriousness, if someone that you greatly admire, someone that has been so high up in government, I know it's hard to do in America to even think about that right now, right? I'm sorry, we're not even supposed to go there in church. But think about other time periods, right? Think about royalty. Comes in this room and steps on this stage. What is your natural response to royalty? Mine is to bow down. My, my natural response is to stoop down low. And I'm not talking about an oppressive kind of authority like if you don't bow down, you've got life in prison kind of authority, like this awe factor, this beauty, this majesty. When royalty is present, you can't help but bow down in worship. 
in the ancient world, when royalty would prepare to travel, society would clear a path. They would make way. They would utilize slave labor or the lower class in order to do this. When royalty would prepare to travel in the ancient world, it was very oppressive. Lives were lost. It was slave labor. When Jesus prepared to travel, in Mark chapter 1, verse 1 opens up with prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. When Jesus shows up, it's a different kind of royalty. And we see that royalty before him showed up to exercise their authority in a very dominant and oppressive way, to expand their kingdom by force. But when Jesus showed up, he had a very different plan in mind. Prepare the way or the road for the Lord. Make straight paths for him or make straight roads for him or make the way straight. Anytime the word way or path or road shows up in the Gospel of Mark here on out, it, was, it, it is always tied in reference to being on the way to the cross. Every single time. Every single time. Who is this king? Who is this king with this new authority? And what did he come to do? What did he come to do? What is he like? A throne is a place of power. A cross was the complete opposite. It was the epitome of helplessness and powerlessness. And rather than go to a throne, we see that this king, this savior, was on his way willingly to the cross. What do we do when we are confronted with that kind of king? What do we do? What do we do when we witness that kind of authority? Not by force, not by might, but by sacrifice, by love, by someone who had all authority but laid it down willingly. What do we do when we're confronted with that kind of royalty? We worship him. We worship him. And even when life feels out of order and we don't understand what's happening or what's going on, we trust him. We trust him. You trust anyone who has ultimate authority, especially this one, especially this one. We are forced to reorient our lives around him. When we behold his power, his identity, his actions, the way he lived his life, his ministry, and then especially his death, and then especially his resurrection. It's impossible to not also pick up our cross and follow him. Amen? Make way. Make way. There might be some perspectives that are going to change for you as we enter into this series, and we make way for the person of Jesus. Make way. 
the king has come and the king is here. And it's a different kind of king. Let's pray. God, we come before you right now and we thank you for the power of your word. Jesus, we thank you for your life. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for the king that you are. You're different than any king that we've ever been confronted with in all of history or any king that we ever will be confronted with for the rest of time. And, and because of that, Lord, we say to you that we want to know you. We, we long for a relationship with you. We are in awe of you. And we take whatever knowledge we do have of you, God, and we subject it to your word, not our opinion. Not our opinion, God, but your word. And we look to your word to find truth, to find grace, to find love. And we look to your church, to your people, to find your presence and your grace and your mercy and your love. And so I pray right now that you would be that to us, God, and for us through your word, through your people, through our very lives. May we make way for the king. Help us to reorient our lives around who you are, God, because that is the way, the truth, and the life. And I pray that our church would be marked by that reality. God, I pray over the next several weeks that we would make gathering together a priority, God, and that you would meet us in this place and that that would overflow into every other area of our lives, God. Meet us here as we worship together. It's in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen.